my friends to the That's Ball Folks podcast. I'm your host, Josh Reynolds. This is episode 24. I am joined by special guest Howard Beck, the very famous NBA journalist, media personality, podcaster. The dude does it all. And this was a phenomenal chat. He has a story basically about everything. We dive into his time he spent with the Lakers, uh, with Kobe, with Shaq. We cover all of that, as well as his time at Madison Square Garden. Uh, when he covered the Knicks during Linsanity and the Carmelo trade, everything like that. So excellent conversation that I'm excited for you guys to hear about. But before we do so, how's everybody doing? If you follow me on social media, you already know the news, but I am very excited and proud to announce that we have a new sponsor and a new partner in Underdog Fantasy. Now, I have talked about my experience with Underdog because it is legal in the state of Utah, and it's been phenomenal. I am quite literally the testimonial. I spoke this into existence. (laughs) I could not be more thrilled to be working with these guys. We're going to be doing a lot of fun daily fantasy contests, a lot of fun pick stuff. We're going to talk about it a lot. Um, Very, very excited to have these guys on board. I mean, again, it's the dream to have a fantasy, daily fantasy company as a sponsor. Get out of here. Amazing. Another great week. Another great basketball week. We're not going to talk too much about it, only because I want you guys to hear my combo with Howard. Uh, I just have to say this. Joel Embiid is balling. He always does, but he is balling on a whole different level right now. And I'd, I still think the odds are slim, but Jokic is on this little downward spiral He's lost three straight games. Yes, he put up insane stats again uh, on Sunday. But I don't know. Don't look now. Don't say it's over. I don't hear anybody singing. This MVP race very well could come down to the wire, and I pray it does. Anyway, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Another giveaway going March Madness is literally a week away. So by the time I... Uh, have my next week's episode out. We will be, uh, the first round will be over, which is unbelievable. Very, very excited for it. So, uh, please, 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 please. This is coming out Monday morning. Join my bracket group, myself, the guys, my buddies at basically even we are running the greatest March madness bracket group ever. It's free to enter. There is a winner at the end of each round. Please join. I'm not kidding. I don't know why you wouldn't. It's free. Just do it. I will link it, link it to this podcast. Uh, it's it's going to be amazing. Anyway, without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with the one and only Howard Beck. Let's go. Today, I am lucky enough to be joined by one of the legends former host of the Full 48 podcast and co-host of the Crossover podcast. He's written for literally everybody, Sports Illustrated, Bleach Report, the New York Times, LA Daily News, a legend in the sports media world and a legend in the basketball world, Mr. Howard Beck. Howard, how's it going, my friend? (laughs) I'm doing well, Josh. Thank you. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, I don't know how accurate that is as a journalist um i'll, I'll, I'll question the, the degree of praise there but thank no you way. It's, it's very it's very nice to hear i appreciate that uh, i will try to live up to it no of course I, I i told you this before we recorded but again uh just a big big fan and to even have you on my podcast is an absolute honor so thank you again it's my pleasure so Absolutely. i want to start off with just about you i i know that you're a california kid you grew up in california um you went to school out there uh, tell us a little bit about your childhood and kind of what made you decide and when did you kind of discover that you wanted to cover basketball? Yeah, you know, it's funny because occasionally somebody will say, oh, wow, you know, you, you cover the NBA. It's it's your dream job. You must have been thinking about this since you were like six years old or whatever it was. And and um, my my path to the NBA, which I've been covering for 26 years now, uh, doesn't make any sense. So that's <laughs> kind of the it's kind of the fun part, right? It's not like this great origin story, like, you know, shooting hoops in the backyard until all hours, you know, whatever. And, you know, having to, to be called in by mom because dinner's on the table and you're, <laughs> it's not that I, I was not the, I was not some basketball addict as a kid growing up in San Jose, California. Um, in fact, during my childhood, the warriors sucked um, pretty consistently. They did win a championship when I was very, very small, but I don't have any recollection of that. Um in fact, they were on, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't even, th- so back when, before cable TV, I'm that old, 
before cable TV, <laughs> we just had like the antenna on the roof thing. Uh -huh. Like the Warriors weren't even on like one of the major channels. They were on like one of the fringe channels. They might have been on UHF instead of VHF, which uh, terms that your listeners will like be like, what the f is he even talking about? Can I curse on your podcast? By yeah, the way? yeah, you're, you're good. Okay. Um, people might be very baffled by UHF, VHF. Go Google it. Um, so I I grew up my my peak sports fandom was in the 80s, uh, early teens to teen years. And. The San Francisco 49ers at that time were the biggest phenomenon in the Bay Area, outshining the A's, the Giants, the Raiders when the Raiders were still there. There were no Sharks yet. They, they had not been conceived of. Um, and the Warriors were mostly an afterthought with the exception of a couple of years of run TMC. And mm -hmm. so the Niners reigned supreme. And I was a huge, huge 49ers fan, a huge Joe Montana fan. And... I always say like my formative moment as a sports fan, which then I think becomes my formative moment as a sports journalist, because it set me on this path is the play that we call the catch capital yeah. T capital C mm -hmm. um, again for the younger folks go, you know, Google it, put it in YouTube. Um, you'll, <laughs> you'll find it. So Joe Montana to Dwight Clark, NFC championship game in 1982. They, they win that on this dramatic play and they go to the Super Bowl, win their first Super Bowl with many more to follow. And, so I was just a huge Niners fan and, and the catch was kind of that singular moment, right? Everybody, I think, who's a sports fan, whichever sport it may be, there's probably some early formative moment, some play, a game, one event where like that's what sparked it all, right? Yeah. And it's not that I hadn't watched a lot of sports before that, baseball, football, everything else and basketball, but that was my formative moment because it was the most exciting play of, of my young sports fandom. And I believe to me, like that's as in my own recollection, that's what got me reading the sports section every morning. I'm growing up in San Jose, California. My, my dad uh, was a huge newspaper guy. He didn't work in newspapers, but he was a big believer in reading newspapers and being informed about the world. So we had yeah. the sounds of Mercury news and the wall street journal on the table every morning. The wall street journal was this boring uh, as far as I was concerned as a kid, this boring newspaper with uh, no comic strips and no color, no photos. <laughs> it was just a bunch of business stuff. It's really, but my dad was a business guy. So, so he read all that, but the Merc was on, on the table every morning too. I start reading and devouring the Mercury news sports section every morning and reading all the sports and reading all the writers and, and, and starting to come up, you know, starting to realize I had certain favorite writers and people that I thought were just were, were, you know, just really, really funny or just really incisive. And at some point in high school, you know, as you're getting closer and closer to having to apply to college and everybody's asking you, well, you know, what do you want to study? What do you want to do for the rest of your life? Like, and it's like this echo thing right in the back of your head. What do you want to do for the rest of your life? Life, life. like it's this big weighty thing that you're trying to, 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 to get your arms around as a teenager, which is a really ridiculous thing that we do in this society. Yes. Yep. Um, <laughs> but in that moment, I thought, well, I love watching sports. There are people who are paid to write about sports. I'm a decent writer. I get good grades on my papers in class or whatever. And I'm like, people get paid to go to the game and then write about it. Well, that sounds ridiculous. Like <laughs> that sounds like a cool way to make a living. Oh, I'll try that. So um, it's really as simple as that. It's, it, it's, it's actually ridiculous how simple it is. And actually, um, Oh, 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 looking back, it's kind of dumb in a way. Like I, there's a bunch of other ways I could have applied my writing or my sports. I didn't have any concept of the idea that there's also like PR or being an agent or a physical therapist or a trainer or like, to me, it was just like sports, good writing, good sports and writing get paid. Oh, like that's <laughs> yeah. like, th this was my primitive teenage brain. Um, <laughs> I didn't really think it through that much. Um, but I went to college at UC Davis, which is up near Sacramento, a couple hours from, from where I grew up. And there's no journalism program there, but I majored in, Eng in English and uh, got a job at the student newspaper, the California Aggie, my first week on campus. And I spent basically the rest of my college career there in a basement. It was all the student stuff with all the radio station, the paper, a bunch of other stuff. They're all in the basement uh, in what was called Lower Freeborn Hall. We never saw the sun Counts for why I'm still this pale to this day. <laughs> um, and we used to joke, like I didn't major in English. I majored in the Aggie. 
I, I didn't, you know, I majored in the, in the college newspaper. Um, yeah. I had college professors who were constantly bitter with me because they knew that I was constantly turning everything in late because I, I had risen through the ranks. I was, you know, eventually like sports editor, then city editor, then editor in chief. And so they gave me a lot of latitude, especially because at least it was writing oriented that I was spending all this time. It was a five yeah. day a week print newspaper, by the way. Think about that. Like, wow. And, and I think it may be weekly still in print now, or maybe they've done away with that even, and it's just digital. But back then, and even back then, that was unusual for a college paper. Five days a week in print, Monday through Friday, completely student run, no advisor, wow. no journalism department, no adults. <laughs> just <laughs> kind us. of awesome. It was awesome. It was, it was uh, for all of us who came, and my, my best friends in this world are still the people that I met back then some of whom are still in newspapers and, and some are doing many other wonderful things. Um, but yeah, it was awesome. We, we, we had such a blast doing it. We made our mistakes. We had our successes, um, but it was all ours. We kind of owned it. And so every day that paper came out um, in newsrooms, this is kind of a, a cliche, a newsroom cliche. where like, you know, it's, it's the daily miracle, right? Because you mm -hmm. start with nothing. And then in, by that night, there's a bunch of stuff running off the presses and it all, you, it all just kind of came together. You, everybody went out and they wrote their stories. They reported, they wrote, they edit, we edited, we put, got the photos and figured out how the page is designed and all this stuff and boom. And then you started all over again the next day. And it was a phenomenal experience. I loved every minute of it. In some ways, it's it's still one of the greatest periods of my life um, looking back. But so that was my training ground. And, um, you know, I could fast forward through a bunch of other stuff. But basically, that's where it all begins for me. Um, I did spend a bunch of years, both in, in college and immediately after college, toggling between being a news writer covering like City Hall uh -huh. and sports. Because I would periodically get sick of sports. Or, or writing about sports and feeling like oh, this is not as important and I should do news because yeah. this is really important. <laughs> yeah. um, and in 1997, um, while I was in a five, where I was in the midst of a five year span of covering news, uh, my buddy Mike Anastasi, who I'd worked for at the Davis Enterprise in Davis, California, he had been the sports editor there. He had gone on to become the sports editor of the Los Angeles Daily News. Um, we'd been out of touch, I think, at that point for a while too. Calls me out of the blue and says, um, and I'm, I'm two hours up the road at this point, working in Ventura, covering city hall. He says, um, our, our Laker job opened up. Would you have any interest in coming back to sports and, and maybe covering the Lakers? And at that time, I didn't think I was ever going back to sports. Um, mm -hmm. at that time, I wasn't really following the NBA that closely. I did know that the Lakers had recently acquired a year before, uh, some kid named Kobe Bryant and that uh -huh. they had signed Shaquille O'Neal. I certainly was aware of all that, but I wasn't honestly sure that I wanted to to go back down that road to go back to sports again, um, which sounds ludicrous as we sit here in 2023, <laughs> yeah. I know. But again, that's that's where I was at that time. But um, obviously, I took that job and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, that's amazing. So you've been you've been covering the NBA nonstop since 97. Then. And that was your that was your welcome yeah. back into the sports world. Yeah. Um, and the learning curve was steep, but I had some great people I worked with and worked for, and I had great beat writers who were very experienced, who were very generous with their knowledge and their time and showing me the ropes. Scott Howard Cooper at the LA times was, you know, a veteran NBA reporter at that time. And, uh, he's my competition to, you know, at that moment, but he's also, was also an early mentor and, and, and showing me like, here's how to travel by the yeah. way, here's what you do on the road. Here are the cities where you need a rental car and the cities where you just take cabs because there was no Uber and Lyft back then. Yeah. Um, things like that. Just, you know, here's how to sign up for your Marriott points. This is the most important part of being a sports writer. <laughs> sign up for Marriott points and airline miles immediately um, and then get the credit cards so you can really uh, accrue a lot more. Um, so like guys like like Scott Howard Cooper and uh, the, the late great Mitch Chortkoff and, and many others, um, kind of showed me the way. And then, yeah, like I, I just, I really enjoyed it. I got some momentum. I figured out the landscape. I figured out my, my voice for, you know, cause that that's part of this too, in terms of your writing. Um, and yeah, it's funny. Like you, you do something like this thinking, well, I'm going to go try this. I have no idea if this is going to work. I have no idea if I'm going to flame out. I don't know if I'm built for this or not, but my dream when I was a kid was to be a sports writer, a traveling sports writer, somebody, a beat writer who went to home and road. I was thinking at that time it'd be the NFL, 16 yeah. games, not 82, <laughs> yeah. different sport. Um, but 
I, after deciding in my own head that I was maybe done with sports forever, this opportunity that you really can't turn down comes along and you just don't know if it's going to work. So, you know, you do what, what you should do in this life, right? Yeah. If it's, if it looks intriguing and challenging and potentially rewarding, you plunge head in head first and you just see where it goes. And it, it, you know, it worked out okay. Uh, 26 years later, here I am. I'm, I'm still doing it. So yes, I, I would say so. Thank goodness you decided to take that plunge. And obviously hindsight, like you said, you knew that, okay, the Lakers had drafted this young kid. Shaq's a big name. He's coming to LA. Like I'm sure those help, but I mean, what, what was that like to go from the newsroom? Then all of a sudden, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm covering the Lakers. Not only am I covering the Lakers, but now I'm surrounded by I mean, Shaquille O'Neal is one of the biggest names in the whole league at that point. And when we use that phrase larger than life, like he is in every sense of it, literally, figuratively, everything. Um, that is one of those those uh, those moments that has stuck, right? A lot of stuff blurs over time, right? But I remember my first uh introduction to the Lakers they're they're doing training camp that year in Palm Desert which is out near Palm Springs um Southern California and they're at I think it's called College of the Desert uh junior college out there and that's where training camp was I have not met anybody yet I think I'd met Del Harris at summer league I'd gone out there after I got hired to just go chit chat with him I'd met Jerry West who was then still the the general manager yeah. or team president whatever his title was at that moment I had not met any of the players and I walk into that gym and the first time you say hello and shake hands with Shaquille O'Neal, like you're, you're, you're just in awe and not because he's a celebrity, but it's just, holy crap, this person is big. You Huge. know it from TV, but it's not the same as when you first meet somebody like that in person. Um, and it wears off over time and probably wears off pretty quickly. But the very first moment when you're coming in as somebody who has not been covering the NBA and now all of a sudden you are covering the NBA. Hello. Hi, my name is Howard Beck. I'm the new beat writer for the LA daily news. It's nice to meet you. And he shakes your hand and your hand disappears. <laughs> <laughs> and you're looking up, craning your neck. And it's just, it's, 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 uh, it's a little like just physically overwhelming in, in the moment and in your, in your head, all you could think is like, I cannot believe I'm talking to this person who is this large that this somebody like who who's built like this even exists. Um, <laughs> and the rest of it is, is not, you know, like, yes, there is an element of when you're covering sports, you are covering these global icons. They are celebrities. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the first lessons you learn, and it's not even really a lesson. It's just kind of the thing you you do. You get used to it. You get used to it quickly because that's that's what the, the the job calls for. You're not there to be a fan. Yeah. You're not there to to stand there in awe. It's okay occasionally to be in awe of something that's the people you're covering do. Right. I'm still in awe of things that LeBron James does on the court, or that Steph Curry does, or that Kevin Durant does. Yeah. But I'm not in awe of them as people. They, yeah. you know, it's the old cliche of, you know, put their pants on one leg at a time, like anybody else. Like, yeah, I've, I've, I've been their locker room. I can, I can confirm. They literally do put their pants on <laughs> one leg at a time, like everybody else. Um, and the mystique does fade over time and you can still be in awe of their talent and their dedication, their excellence, but not in, in, in all of them as figures that you have to cover and sometimes cover critically. Yeah. And, you know, I had to do that over time. So, you know, that, that, that was it. And then you get to know, you know, you quickly get to know like who the guys are who are actually really great to talk to for perspective. Like Shaq and Kobe, you have to talk to because they're the important players and they're really, uh, you know, they're, they're th these are these key stars of the team. Okay, you get that. But the guys that you realize are the most valuable to you as a reporter, and I've learned this early on, like it's Rick Fox, it's Derek Fisher, it's Robert Ory, uh, um, you know, later it's Brian Shaw, guys who are are just really smart. Um, and it's not that, you know, Shaq and Kobe aren't, but yeah. they're stars. They have, they're going to be naturally a little bit more reserved. The role players, especially the, the really smart role players have a, have a way of being the ones who kind of convey what the, what, what's really going on with the team um, and giving you that perspective. Yep. And th those are the guys that, that I enjoyed talking to the most over the years. Again, not to say that it wasn't fun with Shaq and Kobe at times, a little dicier with Shaq and Kobe at times. But uh, but so many of these great role players who were just, like, like I say, very smart, great communicators um, and just willing to explain 
right? Yeah. That's, our job is to ask people to explain things. Yeah. Um, that's that's what we do. Reporters are there to we're at, there to ask questions. I'm not there. I always say this. I won't go down. We, we can go down this tangent if you want me to, but I'll I'll just say it as a quick one off, as a yeah, something that I've I've tried to emphasize to people over time, especially in this age of wild hot takes and punditry and everybody everybody just wants to opine all the time. Yep. Our job as reporters is to ask questions and to be curious and analytical. It's not to be the expert. I'm not trying to walk into the room thinking I know everything. My job is to ask the people who know more than I do to explain the things to me that I don't understand, whether that's players, coaches, scouts, GMs, cap experts, analytics experts, team owners. I don't know how to do any of those jobs. Yeah. I don't. I can't draw up a play. I can't I can't fix your cap sheet. Um, I can do some rough calculations, uh, and I understand the analytics that I need to understand, but I can't do any of those jobs. Those guys are the experts. I'm just a reporter who's trying to translate this and convey something about the game to my readers. Um, that, that's very, I mean, that's perfectly put. That is, uh, I, I love that. So just to touch back on what you said too, just about the role players and being in your, your job as a journalist, uh, the Sixers came out to Utah not too long ago, I was able to kind of go back in. It was my very first experience doing it by myself of like, okay, I'm, I'm in this. So to your point, yes, everybody wants to hear from James Harden. Everybody wants to hear from Joel Embiid. They're giving their calculated responses. You know, almost, you can almost predict exactly what they're going to say. And then shake Milton walks in the room, ask him a question. He gives me the perfect breakdown, a totally different perspective of it. So to your point, it was very cool and eye opening for me to be like, okay, yeah, of course, I need to ask these superstars who everybody wants to hear from, but to be able to hear from a Shake Milton who played 18 minutes tonight, but gave me a totally different perspective and a breakdown of things. I, yeah, I love that. I love that you said it. And that's exactly that's what I took away, too. I uh, I love hearing that, by the way. That's not, that's awesome. Um because it is, I feel like it's this kind of universal truth that that like probably people don't realize. But uh yeah, I used to get grief from teasing from it was, you know, they weren't really mad about it, but it was like uh, from our, our copy editors at the daily news, they'd be like, like, Oh, cool. Another story from Howard where he's just quoting Derek Fisher and Rick Fox all day. <laughs> but yeah. Cause they're great quotes. Like they, they were the ones who like always every day and, and they were very patient and willing to spend the time. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, w- when it comes to the stars that, you know, time is up at a certain point, but you know, fish would just sit there for 20 minutes. If, if we still had questions, he just, he would just keep talking. He's a great talker and he was great at explaining things and was very patient and willing to do it. So. I love it. That, yeah, that's, that's so funny. You said that, but I love how you broke that down. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. In today's world with all these insane hot takes. And I think social media just amplifies all of that. It's (sighs) people think that they're the expert and they approach things as if they are so that of course players get offended and fire off something, which is exactly what they want. So I, I love that you broke it down that way. And it's no surprise that you've gotten to the point in your career that you have today because you've had that perspective and outlook on it and you've gone about it the right way. Tried, you know, yeah. and, and the, th- the thing is, as, as media has evolved, I've been called upon more in the last, you know, 10 years or so to, to be part-time pundit and I enjoy it in, in, in small doses, but yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I, I I couldn't do that job full time if I if I wanted to. I just yep. it's it's not. I'm more interested in asking questions and writing and explaining. Um, and yeah, occasionally you know obviously I've been you know I've had my own podcast, uh, a couple different ones that I've I've been uh, featured on over the last whatever it's been seven years or something eight years since since we first started the full forty eight went back when I was a Bleacher Report. But yeah, I enjoyed that. And I've done a bunch of NBA radio. I'm, I'm a part-time contributor with NBA radio. I enjoy it in doses. I, I, it's fun to talk about the game. And I have, I, yes, I have some opinions, but um, I am not a, a take machine. Don't want to be one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm not, I'm not even, you know, it's, it's not even to criticize those who do because the guys who do it, like, I'm sometimes in awe of them. I don't, I don't know how they, it's exhausting. I don't know. I don't know how they do it. It's it's exhausting just to watch sometimes. (laughs) And some of them do it really well. Yeah. Um, It's it's not my thing. I came up a different way. Um, And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay to put on the pundit hat now and then, but I, I prefer just kind of being the journalist who sits back, analyzes reports, observes, and, and tries to try to explain it all later. Okay, friends, we're several episodes in, and by now you know I'm a huge fan of Griffles Plasma. There's a lot to know about this topic. For starters, 
who needs plasma, why it is needed, and why it is important to set up and donate. Diving right in, who needs plasma? Anyone. Anyone could need plasma at any time. A stranger, a family member, a dude sitting next to you at a Sixers game. Why is it needed? Because plasma makes medicines. Different kinds of medicines for many different people and all kinds of situations. Point is, there's lots of reasons to step up. People count on people like you for these medicines. You're compensated when you donate, and it's just a cool thing to do. You spread good in the world. You show your good side. Find a center near you at grifflesplasma.com. When you donate, tell them Josh sent you. This advertisement is a paid promotion. There's genuinely few things I love more than a quality shirt that represents my squads that I can wear any day of the week. My guys over at Die Hard Addicts have some of the best Philly sports shirts you could ever dream of. Whether it's the Sixers, the Phillies, the Birds, they've got you covered with all things Philly sports. We're not talking those like cheap, thin quality shirts either. They've got heavy duty, good quality graphic tees that are money. I just scored the Princess Diana shirt of her wearing that Birds jacket. Couldn't possibly love it more. Hit them up on Instagram at DieHardAddicts or visit them at their website at www.DieHardAddicts.com. When you find something you like, use code JOSH24 for 10% off your order. Diehard Addicts, providing diehards custom gear to support their addiction. Are you sick of spending time caring for your lawn? Have you spent too much time mowing it or even just keeping it alive? Are you tired of wasting resources and money watering it? If you are like me, the answer is yes to all of those. You should consider artificial grass. Beehive Turf out of Northern Utah will transform your yard into looking beautiful all year round. Check out Beehive Turf on Instagram. Give them a call today for a free quote. Beehive Turf, take the sting out of caring for your lawn. So we got to talk about it. We've talked about Fisher. We've talked about the role guys. We've talked about Shaq. Your article, um, The Making of an NBA Icon, you wrote it about Kobe. I believe the day that we found out about Kobe's passing. It was one of the, uh, again, I, I'm not trying to fanboy. I've been a big fan of yours for a while. It's one of the best things that I've ever read. And I just have to ask you, I, I mean, I know without asking that it already was probably one of the hardest things that you've ever had to write. But what did that look like? I mean, was that something where you just were like, I don't know what's happening. I just have to get my thoughts onto, onto paper. Or was that something that was kind of like, almost therapeutic to you because it that's how it came off. Like you obviously were able to know him from a much different angle and perspective than 99% of all of media, all of people who are fans of basketball and just reading the article was like, wow, like you, you knew him. Um, what was that like for you? And obviously we don't have to dive too deep into it because it was a terrible, sure. terrible day, everything, but I just love to hear your thoughts yeah. on that. No, thank you. Um, and thank you for the kind words on on that column. Um, yes, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to write. I mean, there are a lot of stories that are challenging because of the scope of the story or the sheer number of quotes that I had that I was trying to jam in um, or the length of time certain stories took or the much better research. Like there's all these other ways in which a story might be quote unquote hard yeah. um, or challenging, but that was by far the hardest thing I've ever had to write. Um, and I'd I'd written other kind of either memoriam, uh, memorial, uh, you know, whatever, you know, remembrance type pieces or obituary type pieces about other people that I had known on some level. That happens when you cover yeah, anything. When you're a reporter, eventually you're going to have to write about somebody who died who you had covered at some point in some walk of life. Yeah. Um, and I'd done that when Chick Hearn died. Um, you know, the legendary former Lakers broadcaster um, who could not have been kinder to me, could not have been more generous with his his time and thoughts when I got on the Laker beat. And when Chick died at that time, I thought it was the hardest thing I'd ever had to write because that was the first time, really the first time I ever had to write about somebody that I knew who had yeah. died. Um, I was like, I was close with Chick, but I just, I, I had a very, you know, a lot of warmth for, 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 for the man. And, and, and he had been very kind to me. And um, so it was tough. That was a really tough day, but Kobe was a different thing entirely because, you know, I met Kobe. I'm, I'm 29 when I start covering the Lakers and Kobe is 19. And um, while I wasn't, you know, 10 years is a good long span, but I felt a, a better connection to him than I did a lot of the other players or some of the older players for whatever reason. Um, 
And as I've often said, and as I as I wrote in that column um, on the day he died, like it was a different Kobe that I met in 1997. It wasn't the Black Mamba. That guy didn't exist yet. Yeah. And a lot of the the defiance and the edginess and the harder uh, exterior that he developed over time as a sort of defense mechanism or as a way to kind of power through all the things that he went through um, with Shaq or in, in, in trying to rebuild the Lakers into a, into a champion again, um, or obviously, you know, um, you know, the, the, the sexual assault case um, in 2003 or four, these are all things that I think kind of reshaped him in a way in the back half of his career. And I always say like, and I wrote it in that column, I think like, I didn't know the black Mamba. Like I sure, obviously I still knew Kobe in those years, but I was in New York by then. Yeah. I, but I knew this younger version of Kobe. And so having watched him grow up and having watched him go through some stuff. Um, and again, I don't want to make that passive voice. He did some of these things, you know, yeah. you know, to, yeah, yeah. To, his, to himself. Um, but a lot of different things, family things that he went through the Shaq stuff that he went through, Phil Jackson stuff that he went through, like having seen him, grow up through all this and you know having moved to new york but then having a different relationship with kobe from afar where i think he started to you know things were tense that last year that i was out in la in 0304 because of everything um and i feel like i i got to reconnect with him in a different way from afar so he comes to town twice a year to play the Knicks and Nets. I go out to cover some Laker playoff series and we had a different relationship because I wasn't the pain in the ass who was there every day, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's this thing that happens when you're the, the beat writer on a team where, all right, shoot around, here I am. Practice, here I am. Pre-game, post-game, here I am again. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I was pretty, you know, uh, uh, aggressive in my questions back then. I, 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 I pissed off Kobe, I pissed off Shaq, you know, annoyed everybody at some point. Um, and so from a distance now, it's like, I get to, now it's like, a, it was his, you know, long lost friend from junior high or something. Like the first yeah. time I went back to LA as a, as a reporter for the times, and now he hasn't seen me in months. And i never forget. He saw me walk into the gym and it was in El Segundo, uh, the Lakers practice facility, and he sees me and he was just like, oh, what's up, man? Big time New York Times, da -da -da -da, whatever <laughs> this whole thing kind of teasing. And it was really funny. And I was like, holy moly, like I haven't gotten a, that warm of a of a greeting from Kobe in like, you know, however many years, like maybe not, maybe never until that point. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed him um, as as an individual, as a player, as somebody that I covered, obviously, for seven years up close and for many other years from from more of a distance. Um, and there was this, there was this other side of him that people saw toward the end. And I, this is what I wrote about in the column you mentioned, you know, I, I knew a different Kobe and, and one who was, um, I think more open and engaging and generous. Um, and it's not that that guy ever went away. I think he just put up some walls and then yeah. toward the end, we, we, he started to let those walls down and, um, but yeah, I mean, just that day I, I was sitting at, at this desk where I'm sitting right now talking to you when, you know, like everybody else, I saw the TMZ report on Twitter and I was, I think I had the same reaction everybody did, which is wait, wait, hold, wait, what, what just, no, no, this is, this is some other Kobe Bryant um, or this is some sort of mix up or this is a hoax. Yeah. TMZ doesn't get things wrong on, on this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh very often if ever um but there was the, the initial thing was like there's the, something's something's wrong here this is this can't be it and so i'm not processing it immediately i'm i'm just kind of in this weird partially stunned and partially just in in disbelief and waiting for somebody else to confirm this like when where's the la times where's CNN, where's the Orange County Register? Where's somebody else who's not TMZ? Because I'm going to look at TMZ through a little bit of a jaded lens. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're um, you're not alone. And and besides that, I just again, like it 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 just seemed, it, it just didn't seem like it could be real. Yeah. So I'm even if it had been the LA Times reporting at first, I probably still would have said like I I need somebody else to report. I need somebody to confirm that this is actually that Kobe Bryant, and mm -hmm. that this is not a hoax. And eventually, those reports come. And then it's, I, I'm, 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 I'm just, the air goes out of me. Um, and, uh, and then of course it just got worse. Cause then we, we, you know, we started finding out about all the other people on that, on that helicopter, all these kids and Gigi. 
And, um, you know, I think I, I, I think I alluded to in that column that, you know, in those later years after I'd moved to New York and then after my daughter was born, um, you know, Kobe had initially, you know, it was, it was, uh, his two daughters and eventually, you know, they, they had more kids, but I remember when, when it was the two of them, my daughter was, I think, right between them in age, his first two, his first mm -hmm. two girls. And so we would talk about that. We would talk about our, our girls and, and like that when we would see each other, that was always that first. And, um, plus his first daughter was Natalia and my daughter is Talia. Um, so it was just awesome. close enough that, that yeah. he, he, he thought that was kind of funny. Um, and so, it was just, it was just so hard to, to, to process and, to, and to, it was just so awful. It was so tragic. And, and as a reporter, you know, you know, like that call is coming or that text is coming. My editors are going to be hitting me soon. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like, you know, there are many, many people who are much closer to Kobe than I was. So I never want to portray this as something where it's like, you know, you know, losing this close friend. It's just somebody I'd known a long time, you yeah. know, and had seen grow up, you know, and had known him for what, 23 years or something of my life mm -hmm. and who I'd had a lot, a lot of time with over the seven years I was covering him day to day. And so it does hit you in a, in a certain way. And there is some grief in, in, in involved there and the shock involved there. And, but someone's going to be calling soon and they're going to ask me to write. Yeah. And some part of me would have loved to just not have to write at all because yeah. it, it's it it was just too hard but once you settle down and say all right this this is what i do this is the job and this is what i have to do and besides that you know i, I want to remember him my way and i want some readers to uh, to be able to appreciate the version of him that i knew and and the best version of him mm -hmm. um we don't you know there's a lot of other stuff we could talk about at the day on the day he died there's a lot of other stuff we could talk about in the years since then or in the years before then but on the day he died, yes, I'm thinking of the best of him. And that's what I want to convey um, because I think I did get a little bit of insight into him that not too many people, you know, or certainly basketball fans who had never met him uh, hadn't gotten to see. And so yeah. that that was the goal that day. Well, you nailed it. Again, I'm I'm not just saying that. It was, uh, I think, it was weird. I, I've never experienced anything like that. Like everybody goes through loss. Everybody has people close to them pass away, but like to have this icon that I had never met before. And I think 99% of people who loved Kobe, they've never met before, but it was, it was strange just to see how it actually affected everybody. Like whether you liked Kobe as a player or not, like everybody had this same type of feeling. It was just a bizarre day, but you, you, the article is fantastic and I'll, I'll link it with uh, this podcast episode, but Appreciate yeah, that. it was, it, yes, of course it was, it was amazing. And I can only imagine how tough it was for you to actually, be able to put something this good out on this day. That's a, that's not a easy task. I imagine. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, not and at at the, you know, um, look, you want to be proud of everything you write, everything you put under your byline, you want to have invested enough of yourself that you feel like this is something that, that people will enjoy or learn from, or, you know, just glean something from. Um, and, you know, like I say, I, there's a part of me that didn't want to write the day at all. I absolutely believe that was the hardest thing I've ever had to write. I am proud of that column. Like there are yeah. like there, there are not too many of my own stories where I'll go back and like pat myself on the back. Um, I felt good about what I wrote that day. Um, and, and, you know, it, the, yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's, uh, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to revisit my, my emotions too much on that, but yeah, it, just, yeah. it, it was, it was something that I put a, much more of myself personally into than I normally do. Cause as I talked, as we talked about earlier, I don't, I don't do a lot of, I don't, I don't use, I, I don't use first person very often at all. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in 32 years in the business and 26 years covering the NBA, you couldn't count on more than two hands. I don't think the number of times, I mean, maybe there's a little bit more than that, but I, I don't do first person. Yeah. That was, that was one that I put a lot of myself into. Um, and, um, you know, I, but I I felt good about that. I felt good about um, the video essay that I did for Bleacher Report and Turner, which ran on TNT um, mm -hmm. later that week. Um, I was very proud of that. And there was an incredible team of people working with me on that from, from Bleacher Report who just did incredible work helping me with the script, putting together all the video, um, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, look, something like this happens. It's awful. And you, you just try to honor 
that person the best way you can. And with that column in the video essay, I, I felt like I did that. You did. You definitely did. So you, you allude to a, a few of them in the column. Um, but do you have, again, being able to spend all of this time with him, do you have like a favorite story or memory with Kobe that it was kind of just you and him? I mean, you alluded to it earlier, your daughter, his, his oldest daughter, that's something that you and him <laughs> yeah. will only ever have. That's so cool. Do you have any other kind of, or a favorite memory like that? Um, you know, like there are a bunch, I mean, I, you know, I open and close that column with this anecdote from early in his career. I, I, it always, it's always a little bit hazy, but it's, it's one of the first two years, either, either my first year or second year covering the Lakers and they're practicing at LA Southwest college. They don't even have their own practice facility yet. And, um, so they're practicing at this junior college, which is just mind blowing. I think for people to, to, to think about this now, it's it, for, even for me, but, uh, for, for NBA fans, imagine Shaq and Kobe and all these guys in a junior college gym in like central <laughs> LA or is it South LA. I, I, I get my, my areas mixed up, but, um, and it's, it, you know, that, that's, that's what, that's where they're all pulling in every day and, and practicing. So after practice, there's all these different doors out of the gym. And so guys can just scatter and Kobe would meet with us very regularly, like, you know, considering where he and, and this was even after he became a big star. And at that time, he's he's still, he's like a star, but he's not quite at that level yet. Um, Kobe was really good to the media in those early years. Um, and for most of his career, frankly, but um, those early years, he was he was great with us. We talked to him almost every day. But sometimes you're, you're talking to somebody and your back is turned. And so like, you know, talking to Del Harris or talking to Robert Ory. And on that particular day, I think it was, it was Rob. And I hear from behind me, hey, Howard, you need me today. And I turn around and it's Kobe and he's going to, he's going to leave the gym and he could have just left the gym. Um, and I'm sure some, somebody would cynically look at it and go like, ah, you know, that's, that's him trying to butter up the media or whatever. But like, that's just not how he didn't need to do that back then. Everybody, yeah. everybody loved Kobe back then. Um, and, and, and besides that, like it's not, it wasn't the, the burdens weren't as high, the expectations, everything else, there was nothing to try to, to manipulate. He just was somebody who was very courteous and and yeah. and I think enjoyed the back and forth with us, and um, and and I I I think I think it was you know you know I think I let him go that day because like he's generous at this time and we don't need to wear him out every day. Yeah. Um. So, but there's it was it's just it's little moments like that. There was a day we were in Memphis. Um, I think it was pregame and we're just you know shooting the shit in the locker room and he had just filmed this really cool commercial. It wasn't the one where he jumps over the car. That was later. But there was uh -huh. one where, like, I think he, like, jumps, like, from half court or the length of the court or something. I can't even tell you if it was a Nike commercial or who it was for. But um, it's 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 the appearance of flight, basically. And yeah. So, and I remember him telling me a little bit about some of how they did it and then saying, hey, listen, don't, don't write it. But it was really cool. Here's what we did. <laughs> it was just, like, little moments like that where you're, you know, the tape recorder's off, the notebook's in my back pocket or at my side, and we're just talking. Um, I, I think I included in that column, I, I often reference the one where, um, you know, early on, I think it was, again, I think it was his my first year on the beat, so his, his second year with the Lakers, where we're sitting in the locker room at the Great Western Forum where they used to play, and, you know, there's uh, golf is on the TV in, in the locker room, and I sat down, plopped down next to him to, to ask him about whatever, or just to like, you know, just to, just to chit chat. And he says, uh, he says, how are you golf, man? And this is like Tiger Woods is at his peak. Everybody's buzzing about golf all the time. Everybody's into golf at that moment. And I'm like, nah, mm -hmm. you know, it's not, you know, I don't, I don't golf. I said, do you? And a lot of, a lot of young players have been picking it up back then. And, um, and he says, nah, it goes, I, I, something, so it was something the effect of, I don't have the quote from it. It was something like, you know, I, I, I could never play something that I couldn't, um, perfect or something like that and, and i said oh and you can you can perfect basketball and he was like oh absolutely that's so Kobe awesome. loved the word absolutely which was a very kobe word to to, to have as a go-to word because like he when it comes to basketball it was it, you know it, yeah what, what, what there's nothing that he couldn't do like any can you do this can you do this can you do this? yeah absolutely it's gonna be absolutely to all that of course he can he's gonna think it absolutes when it comes to what he could do in basketball that's fantastic that that is so good again you being able to connect with them like you said Mike's away, pen and paper down, just you and him, guy to guy. That's that's so cool. And that so, was one, by the way, real quick, just as a reporter, yeah. as a reporter anecdote, that was one we we are just talking. I'm not recording him. I'm not jotting anything down. 
And the first time I used that anecdote in print was like two years later yeah. from memory. So yes, the quote is kind of reconstructed from my own head, but the 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 moment was was really embedded in my head. And I always kind of knew like someday I'm going to use this as a, as a cool anecdote about this, yeah. this perspective into Kobe. And I used it for the first time during the 2000 finals when they were playing the Pacers. And Kobe has that incredible game four where Shaq fouls out, it goes into overtime and Kobe carries them to this really critical win while playing on his ankle that was so badly sprained that he had to skip game three. Yeah. And so on the off day between games four and five now, I'm trying, we're all doing perspective pieces on what this, this signature game meant for Kobe and his, his young burgeoning, you know, resume and legacy or whatever legacy is too, too heavy of a term for that early on, but you're trying to put in perspective. And so I'm now trying to come up with the things that are unique that I can write that nobody else can. And so I think that was the first time I used that anecdote about the, the golf thing. Perfect timing. It was great. Yeah. So you've, you've interviewed literally everybody, anybody and everybody under the sun, anybody who any basketball fan would want to hear from just barely uh, at all-star weekend. You had Carl Malone, Allen Iverson on there. The Malone piece was fantastic because he hasn't spoken to anybody outside of his family in years and years. Do you have a favorite interview or somebody who you've interviewed throughout your career where you're like, yeah, that was, that was awesome. Um, <sighs> I mean, there are, there are a lot, there are a lot, you know, and, and, you know, I've, I've covered a lot of stars over the last 26 years, but the ones you get to know are the ones that you're covering day to day that mm -hmm. those are the ones you get to know the best. Right. And so as a beat writer covering the Lakers for seven years, as a, as a beat writer covering the Knicks for nine years with a slight detour to the Nets uh, for a little bit of that, um, those are the guys you get to know best. Right. So I knew Shaq and Kobe and all those Laker teams better than I knew say, you know, Kevin Durant or Steph or LeBron or whatever, but but those last three guys I mentioned are all guys that I've gotten a chance to have one-on-ones with either briefly or, you know, sidling down the hallway or in Steph's case, I've, I've had, you know, several one-on-ones with him over the years for various features. Cause the warriors have been obviously that big of a deal. And Steph is great and very generous with his time. And Raymond Ritter, the uh, legendary hall of fame PR person for the golden state warriors has always been great about um making sure I can get some time with Steph or Draymond awesome. or Clay, those, those guys, that, that team is so much fun to cover. Um, I, I kind of want them to go on forever though, though, yeah. though I know they can't partially because <laughs> they're so much fun to watch and partially because they've, they've always been so great uh, to deal with. And, and I, I enjoy writing about them a lot. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like, I can't, I, like I, I can't possibly name one. Um, the story I think I probably most often reference um, was uh, the headline was the brotherhood and it was about LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony. I did this for Bleacher Report back in like 2015, 16, somewhere in that range. Um, I had always been fascinated, especially after Carmelo came to New York and I was still on the Knicks beat by the fact that Carmelo and LeBron had this kind of funny friendship slash rivalry. Their same draft class, 2003 drafted a few spots apart. And even though Carmelo was, you know, you know, drafted a couple spots later coming into that draft, anybody who was alive during that time would remember there was this actual debate, not about who would go number one. Everybody knew LeBron was going to be number one, but the secondary debate was, yeah, but who's going to have the better career. Uh -huh. And a lot of people thought Carmelo would have the better career because he was the more natural scorer. He was more polished. He had just led Syracuse to the national championship. LeBron, okay, sure, he's awesome, but he's coming straight from high school, and he's more of a. Back then, it was always he's more magic than Michael. He's more he's more about a, being mm -hmm. a playmaker than a score. What and so, their trajectories, excuse me, diverge eventually. But I always thought, what's it like to be these two in this weird kind of, and especially at that time, um, you know, I, by then LeBron's won his first two titles, um, but no one had ever really explored that, and I thought. And I didn't know LeBron really like I'd had a few, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever even talked to him one-on-one -on -one before that, uh -huh. but I knew Carmelo enough. And I was told by somebody in LeBron's circle of broadly speaking, if you get Carmelo, LeBron will, will talk because if, if, if Carmelo's talking about it, LeBron will definitely talk about it. Not yeah. that he wouldn't have been willing otherwise, but just like, that's the linchpin. This is the way to go about it. And so yeah. that was a very good piece of advice. And so I went to Carmelo and Carmelo was like, sure, yeah, let's do it. So I talked to Carmelo for like a good half hour, which 
I don't know how many half hour car interviews Carmelo Anthony was doing back then. Uh, I felt uh, pretty fortunate just to get that, but he was enjoying it. And that's the best thing. Like when you're a reporter, when you're a writer, like, you know, you want to tell the stories that, that, that appeal to you and that you think might appeal to your readers. Yeah. And you hope that when you go to the, to the people you're, you're writing about that they're just as interested in doing this. Right. And yep. sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. And there's but Carmelo just like lit up at this, at this idea. And he was so willing to, to, to talk about his friendship and where they first met and how it grew over time, what it's like to be friends and rivals at the same time. And, you know, watching each other evolve in different places and different situations and all this. And so, yeah, sure enough, I get Carmelo. I go back to my, my conduit to LeBron. And I, I say, look, Carmelo talked, I got him. We talked for 30 minutes and it took a couple months, but I finally got my time with LeBron. I was told it would be 15 minutes. It was 30. Because again, LeBron was having such a good time talking about it. That's so awesome. He, that that and, and it was and that's what made it enjoyable for me too. Like, cool. I've got this guy talking about something that appeals to him so much that he wants to just keep going. Yeah. And nobody interrupted us. Thank you, thank you, Cavaliers PR. Nobody got everybody was just like, <laughs> no one's gonna tell LeBron to stop if he wants to keep talking anyway. He's LeBron. But yeah, um, and it was funny too because he had you know those garbage cans that are like the square ones where the the hole to throw in the garbage is on the side, so the yeah. top is is solid. Uh -huh. There was one of those sitting in the Cavs practice facility, and 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 LeBron had just kind of hopped up on top of it and was sitting on top of it for most of the interview. And then I knew the interview was over when there was this one last little quip, um, where we had talked about the banana boat crew and about how he wants <laughs> someday to all pl play with all of them. Uh -huh. And he goes, he goes, you know, who, who knows? We'll see. And it was this kind of chirpy little like, we'll see. And then he smiles, hops off the garbage can and <laughs> walked off. Um, and I and I love the way that story came out. That was another one where, you know, one of the few uh, being hypercritical of myself, but that's one of the few where I'll look back. There's always things that I'll look at and go like, ah, I should have done this differently. But um, but I was I was proud of that story. I had a lot of fun with that one. And, and so, yeah, that's I think that answers the question of most memorable. Yes, I think so. That's pretty awesome. Like you said, there's a the list of people who have got to speak with both Mello and LeBron for that extended period of time and not just speak with them that long, but actually have them engaged and excited. That's pretty awesome. That is very, very fun. cool. It was fun. so you so you went from L.A. to New York uh, covering the Lakers to the Knicks. I want to know. Do you have it? I mean, you were there during that awesome mellow years in New York when there was buzz. I mean, again, speaking just as a basketball fan, I think I can I can safely say for fans league wide that the league is more fun. Basketball is more fun when the Knicks are actually good, when basketball in New York and these bigger cities is actually fun. And there was a buzz about the Knicks during this time when they traded for mellow and and at the time you were there. Do you have a favorite memory from your time uh, covering the Knicks? So those were a lot of really bad years overall, right? Like, you know, there was a 23 win season yes. with Larry Brown <laughs> and just uh, outright dysfunction. And everybody's at, at war with each other. Larry Brown's at war with Marbury. Marbury's at war with Larry Brown. Marbury's at war with Isaiah. Isaiah's at war with Larry Brown. Everybody just hated everybody. And it was just constant drama. And there's a certain perverse, um, you know, uh, allure to that as a, as a reporter because it's great material, right? Like it's great stuff to write, but like it's also wearing. It's, it's, it's really you know, like the negativity um, and the, just the, the kind of cloud over that team. Um, I always say I, I have no rooting interest whatsoever. I'm not emotionally invested. I don't care who wins and who loses. And at the end of each night, the end of each game, I don't feel any differently about, you know, me, the world, uh, yeah. life, the universe, whatever. It doesn't matter. I did uh -huh. the, the results don't matter to me at all, but being in an environment where it's that dour all the time, kind of wears on you after a while. Like it's, it's not pleasant to be around. And so there were yeah. a lot of, there were a lot of bad years and, and, um and not a lot to look back and go, Oh, I'm so glad I was there for fill in the blank. That said um, there was this incredible excitement and energy around Carmelo's arrival. But even a few months before that, after I'd been here, so I'd, I started covering the Knicks in 2004 and it was 2010. So six years, six pretty bad years before Amari Stoudemire decides to sign with them, pulls on a Knicks hat and says, the Knicks are back, baby. And that was a, that was a moment. And for New York, that was a moment. Like, however people might feel about Amari now and the way his Knicks career went and how quickly things went south and his knees and everything else, Amari has this, this incredible charm and charisma about him. And he puts on that hat and says, the Knicks are back. And like this city just like 
swooned, right? Mm-hmm. And he was an exciting player too. Um, yeah. And so those first few months of the of what was briefly the Amari Stoudemire era before it became the Carmelo era. They were um, good. They were good before were the good. Mello trade. Yeah, they were pretty exciting. Um, they were starting to peter out a little bit. Amari's workload was pretty high. And, and, and so they get Carmelo. They never really reached the heights that they obviously hoped to, to reach. Um, but there were a lot of fun Carmelo moments along the way. And obviously that 54 win season, they go to the second round. The only time they've been out of the first round in a thousand years. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but really like if I'm making a list of like favorite memories of covering the Knicks, it's Lynn sanity. I mean, it's, oh, it's Jeremy, it has to be Jeremy Lynn, like it, the most unexpected, wild, surreal, exhilarating thing. I, I just, you, nothing has happened like that before it or since then. Um, yeah. Everything about it was just, you know, so unexpected. And then it just keeps going, you know, it's, you know, first he's exploding against the jazz and then like he's dominating, you know, against John Wall and the wizards. And then, He's beating Dirk Nowitzki in the Mavs. Then he's beating Kobe in the Lakers. And then <laughs> the, the game-winning shot. Like, I'm not saying these in order, obviously. But yeah, like, yeah. then the, the, the game-winning three over Jose Calderon in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And like, like oh my God, like what is this thing going to end? Like, yeah. what is going on here? And eventually it did. Um, his, you know, he had some knee issues that, that, that slowed it down. Um, teams started coming after him a lot harder. There was that part of it. Carmelo came back and there was a little bit of a wrestling match for the, for the offense, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, you know, nothing in the NBA, much less just with a single team with the Knicks, like nothing, there's no, nothing like that. So that's, that's probably the best memory. Cause it was, it was just so unexpected and fun. It was amazing. There was nobody in on the planet who disliked what was happening. It was amazing. Everybody found themselves rooting Incredible. for this guy. Yeah, and this awful. and this city just went crazy. All there's like Jeremy Lin jerseys everywhere. All of a sudden, friends of mine who were not even NBA fans who were only vaguely aware of the NBA were all of a sudden were like Jeremy Lin fans overnight. Um, yeah. It was wild. That's so awesome. It, yeah that that was that was a that was a very very fun time. You being there in person covering it, I can only imagine. Fantastic. Yeah. So uh, we'll end with this uh, again. I can't even thank you enough for all of your time. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get you out with this. I personally, again, I am nowhere near made it. I don't do anything like that, but I get a lot of DMS from people asking me like, Hey, like, how can I get started? Like, you've got a podcast that's going somewhat well. Like what, what could I do if I want to get into the sports journalism or media world? What can I do? And I always tell them, I'm like, Hey, like, just get started, like do it now. But again, that's coming from me. I, I am nobody. From the legend himself, what advice can you give somebody who is looking to break into this industry? Um, I came up the very traditional route. And so I I sometimes struggle with this question in the sense that the media landscape has changed so dramatically, both for good and bad, that it's sometimes, I think, difficult for me to, to, to give the right advice for how to get in in 2023, right? Yeah. Like, I start my career in 1991 um, and, and my sports writing or NBA uh, beat writing career in 1997. Um, and it's a much different place now. The good news is there are way more paths into this space, right? Before the internet, before blogs, before social media, before podcasts, there were really only a couple of options, you know, uh, go get a job at a newspaper, go get a job at a radio station, go get a job at a, TV station. I think yeah. that was pretty much the the entire list. <laughs> um, and then work your way up. And that's what I did. Like that, I, I you know, started working at a small town newspaper with a circulation of 10,000. And I worked my way up to a slightly larger paper of 80,000 or 100,000, whatever the Ventura County Star was. And then I eventually got to the LA Daily, Daily News, which I think was 160,000 at that time. Um, and then fortunate enough to go from there to the New York Times, which has a circulation of a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, but I, 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 you know, I, I, I did it the old fashioned way, right? I just worked my way up from small newspapers to larger newspapers. And by the way, that path still exists. I know it sounds um, quaint and out, and outdated, but it's actually still, frankly, the best training ground too. Um, being a beat writer covering a team, like I'll only talk about it through the NBA lens because I don't, I, I can't speak to the other sports. I still believe, and I, this probably applies across the board, but I still believe the best training ground to cover a sport is to cover a team first at the team level every day where 
you have to learn to, you know, create these relationships and 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 create, you know, you establish this rapport, learn the ropes, um, learn team dynamics, um, learn the 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 ups and downs of an NBA schedule and how teams navigate them from the travel to practices and shootarounds and games, all of it, and then. And you write a ton, which makes you a better writer. You report a ton, which makes you a better reporter. You make mistakes, which means you have to be accountable for those mistakes and walk in the gym the next day and say, yep, sorry, screwed that one up. Or, oh, you're angry about this one thing I wrote? Tell me why. Huh, interesting point, but I'm standing by this because here's who I talked to and here's how I know this is true. Or, no, you were two for 18 and yeah, those were bad shots you were taking. Sorry. Like, (laughs) but you be accountable and you're there every day. And I think all of those are really important lessons. And so so I, I still think that being a beat writer, whether it's for a newspaper or a website, whatever, and being there every day is still the best training ground before anybody tries to like be a national writer. And and people want to do that immediately. Everybody wants to like jump straight to being like a, a you know, a, a national voice and pundit on everything to do with the league. And it's like, and some people know the game really well. And some people played it at a high level um, in, in college or, or wherever and, and know the game at a different level than I do when it comes to the X's and O's. But trying to be a national voice right out of the gate without learning how to cover the league and what it means to be a reporter covering the league it's never just about the basketball. It's like I said yeah. at the outset, I'm not an expert on basketball. I'm not an expert at anything. If I'm an expert at anything, maybe it's about it's reporting and writing because that's what I do. Um, and you know, I, I, maybe I'm an expert at, at writing about the NBA, but I'm not an expert on basketball. I, again, give me a whiteboard. I cannot draw up a play. Doesn't matter. Yeah. I don't need to. I'm not a coach. Um, but I think I think people need to to focus on on that other part of it first. What does it mean to be a reporter? What does it mean to be a writer? What does it mean to, um, or how do you, how do you go about creating this network of, of sources and relationships? How do you navigate all that? Um, what do you do on the days that, that again, that you might make a mistake or that you, you, you know, said the wrong thing, whatever. Um, all that's important. So that's not answering your question about how to get started other than I think you, you had it right. Um, in that, you start by just do by just doing it, right? Find yeah. a place to do it. And if nobody is going to hire you to do it, well, we do live in an era where everybody can just start a Substack or create a website um, or create a following on Instagram or Twitter or TikTok. There are a thousand different ways to cover the league now and to cover sports yeah. now that didn't exist when I started. You can find other ways in. Um, when I was at Bleach Report, I was fortunate enough to get to know Omar Raja, who yeah. was the founder of, of House of Highlights. Great dude. Omar is a kid in his 20s, early 20s, sitting at home in Florida, just creating content because he because he loves the game and love the heat and, and starts putting stuff up and he gets this following. And the next thing you know, House of Highlights is worth like a kajillion dollars or something and <laughs> Turner Sports buys it and Omar and I become teammates at Bleach Report for a time. Um, not everybody can be Omar Raja. Um, yeah. Not everybody could be uh, worldwide Wob <laughs> or or anybody else who has has kind of come into the NBA space through different channels than what used to exist. But it just shows like there there is, you know, if you're creative and ambitious and passionate about what you're doing, you can find other ways in. Um, and there's the traditional ways and many, many now what I would consider non-traditional ways that I, I guess I shouldn't even consider that because they're just it's just <laughs> the world as it is now. Um, yeah. But you know, follow your passions, um, put your, put your all into it. Um, and if you want to be a writer, there's the only way to becoming, the only way to become a good writer is just to write a lot. It's it's all reps. It is all reps, but also, you know, and these are things that all of us in the industry say, so they sound cliche, but it's just true. Find the people in the industry that, that, that have been doing this a long time, whose work you really appreciate and that, that their writing speaks to you and read them and read them a ton and then find some other people who who write a much different way and read them a ton too, because you're kind of absorbing it all. It's all osmosis, right? Like whatever yeah. my writing style is, it, it's some combination of everybody else that I read growing up and, and through my years of covering the league where I was every day checking myself against other people who had covered the same story and saying, did they get it better? Or did they do, did they do it better? Or did I do it better? And then on the days they did it better, I'd go like, huh? Yeah, that's really good. Damn. All right, I should do it that way next time. And on the day, and occasionally, if I got it better, I was like, "Ah, I got them today." And 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 that's and that's the thing. Like, you got to measure yourself, and you got to care about the writing enough to constantly want to keep improving it. 
Yeah. Um, and it's and it's not to say you're copying anybody else's style, but you can emulate or you yeah. can try to try to try to use it as an example of of a different way into a story or a different way to set up a scene. Um, and so that's it. You just gotta, you know, constantly be curious and self-critical and keep working at it. I love it. I love that. Yeah, you're just. I, I, I like what you said. You're not emulating uh, per se, but you're just taking in, you're absorbing all the knowledge to find your own voice. I think that's perfectly put. That was great. Howard, you, you are the man. Truly, truly, I'd sound just like the biggest fanboy, but I cannot thank you <laughs> enough for having uh, taken the time with me. And it's an honor to have you on my podcast. Thank you. Thank you. No, Josh, thanks for having me. Thanks for the great questions. All very cool, thoughtful questions, which uh, you can tell by the fact that I had very long answers. If they were, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a good question is going to get a nice long answer. Um, so uh, you you took me down some really good, great paths there. Enjoyed it a lot. Um, best of luck to you uh, with, uh, with everything. And thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thanks, Howard. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Howard Beck. What a guy. Truly, that was amazing. And to hear those stories from his perspective and pick his brain was uh, all-timer. Again, hope you've all had a fantastic week. The Mac McClung giveaway is closed. Congratulations to the winner. Uh, keep an eye out for another giveaway. I'm going to be pushing this first thing Monday. Uh, again, just a fun little way to give back. And again, I sound like a broken record. Join the March Madness Bracket Group with Basically Even, please. If you are even a fan of basketball in the slightest bit, you have to do this. You have to. Again, the link directly to the website in order to sign up. It's free, and it is linked below uh, no matter where you listen to this podcast. So love you all. If you feel so inclined, please go ahead, rate, subscribe, review, do all that fun stuff. One star, five stars, I don't care. I just appreciate and love all of you. Hope you all have a fantastic week. Got an awesome guest lined up. A uh, very uh, a name that you as a basketball fan will recognize. And I'm very excited for uh, you to hear that. But hope you all have a fantastic week. Be nice to each other. Love you all. And that's all, folks. Mm -hmm.